the second letter to the church of the Thessalonians. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Your faith is growing more and more, despite your hardships and suffering. God uses this persecution to develop us, but judgment will come for those who abuse you. The end is coming, but it will not come until the Antichrist is first revealed. He will exalt himself over everything and proclaim himself to be God. Many will follow him, but will be lost forever because of it. The day is coming for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, and we will come with him from heaven with his powerful angels. Jesus will overthrow the Antichrist with just a word spoken, and he will reign over all creation in triumph. God has chosen you to be saved by the work of his spirit and by your faith. May you continue to be faithful to the Lord and walk in obedience to him so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in and through your life. Until that day, we will all be together with our Lord. One day, the curtains will open and out on center stage will be Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my joy to announce to you that Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. He is coming back. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 24 and verse 27, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. In Luke chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect Him. This morning, I want to talk to you about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. The book of 2 Thessalonians is all about one giant idea, one big truth. What will happen as the end comes? In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, where we've been the last two weeks and we still are at today, Two concepts are presented by the Apostle Paul. One, that there is coming a man who will be the world emperor, the world leader in the last day. He will be the incarnate evil himself that the Bible calls the Antichrist. And he will emerge in the last days. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at all the things that Paul has said. We have brought to bear the things that Daniel taught us in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, and John taught us in the book of Revelation, and now Paul is teaching us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we brought them all together. Here is the picture of what the Bible teaches about this man of perdition, the Bible calls him, this man of sin. But now, this Sunday, today, right now, and next Sunday, 
I want us to pull all of our attention to one verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's verse 8. And notice what he says. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Next Sunday, we're going to look at that phrase in which he describes Jesus Christ will overthrow him by the breath of his coming and he'll destroy him. We're going to look at that next Sunday. It is an explanation of what will happen at the battle of Armageddon. The name, the word Armageddon is used everywhere. I mean, you, you see it in movies and you read it in, in uh, articles in the paper and other places. But most of the time, it is never used the way the Bible uses it, though the word is always gotten from the Bible. What is this Armageddon? What is this battle of Armageddon? What is it about? How does it unfold? Next Sunday, if you'll be here next Sunday, you'll leave this room saying, I finally get this. I understand what the battle of Armageddon is about. Next week, that's what we're going to be talking about. Be back, please, be back next Sunday. But today, I want us to focus in on the last phrase of verse 8, by the splendor of his coming. I want to talk to you about the return of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham was asked the question, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he said, I'm an optimist, of course. And the man said, how could you be? The world is in such terrible shape and the world is only going to get worse and worse. How can you be an optimist? And Billy Graham said, because I've read the last chapter and we win. That's why. You and I, when we understand what's coming, when we understand how God says it will all unfold, we don't have to be impacted by what is going on here or at least discouraged to the place of despair. We understand there is a God on the throne and he is still in charge and he is still in control. What we're seeing in this passage of Scripture and the verse that we're looking at is the return of Jesus Christ, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So, when Jesus comes, what will he be like? Well, take out of your mind all of those pictures in Sunday school, all in your Sunday school classes of Jesus being blue-eyed and fair-skinned. And when you look at him, he's just uh, very soft, maybe a little bit weak, the suffering servant. Take those out of your brain. First of all, he did not have blue eyes, and he did not have fair skin. He was a Jewish man, Born and raised in the Middle East, he had olive complexion or darker. That's who Jesus was. And he didn't have blue eyes, I can tell you that for sure. And he was not soft and weak. Jesus was born and raised there, or not born, but raised in the Galilean hills. He had pushed and pulled and carried boulders and rocks one after another. He had cut trees down and turned the trees into lumber and made stuff with it. This man had muscles on his muscles. He was a strong man. He was a rugged man. He was a tough man. That's who Jesus actually was. 
But the Bible says in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2 that before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was seated by his Father in heaven, clothed with power and glory and might. This is who Jesus Christ is. Now, this Jesus Christ with power and glory and all of this that was given to him, this Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2 said, he set aside his glory, his majesty, his power. He humbled himself so that he would come be born as a baby grow up to be a man who would teach us things about the Father, about his Father that you and I never understood. We never knew until we heard it from the lips of Jesus. Performed miracles, but he came to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin and on the third day rose again from the grave. And after he rose again from the grave, he was here for 40 days, appearing to his disciples over and over, and not just to his disciples. Up to 500 people, the Bible says, saw the appearance of the living Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Over and over, he spent time with his disciples. He took away any doubt, any, any issue they could possibly have. They went to their death knowing that the, Jesus Christ was risen again. And they went to their death because they were unwilling to deny what they knew unquestionably to be true. And after those 40 days, the Bible says all of these followers were together, over 500 people, and all of them saw him ascend back to heaven to go up into the clouds and out of their sight where he resumed his throne by the right hand of the throne of his father, clothed with majesty and power and honor. That is who Jesus Christ is today. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he will come back in his majesty, in his glory, and in his power. John declares this to be who Jesus, the Jesus we will see when he comes back. This is what John talks about in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to look at it together. But before we do, there's something that I want you to understand. There are many people today that believe that there is a vast difference between what is called the rapture of the church where Jesus comes back and he takes all of those who are true followers of Christ up and out and to heaven with him. There is a vast difference between the rapture of the church and the glorious appearing of Christ, which is commonly known as the second coming. I'm one of those who believe that these are two different moments, two different events. Last year, as we were going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we came to chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and I taught you on what is the description of what we understand to be the rapture of the church. Right there in your notes, I've included a very easy way for you to access that again, and I want to encourage you, go listen to the message again, go watch it, even if you were here, to reacquaint yourself with the basics of what Paul teaches about the rapture of the church. I believe that the second coming of Christ is a separate event. 
I've told you for the last couple of weeks that there are a lot of ways to see the second coming of Christ and good people see it in different ways. But the way I see it is called the premillennial view. The premillennial view I have accepted because there is evidence by the writings of the early church fathers at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, that it was a very strong understanding of how the second coming of Christ should be understood and, and interpreted. Second of all, all you've got to do is just read the Bible. When you read the Bible and just accept at face value what it teaches, more than likely, you'll end up being a premillennialist because it's just how the Bible unfolds. If there's no one standing at your shoulder telling you, well, I know the Bible says this, but God actually meant that, if you just read what it says, more than likely you'll become a premillennialist in your view. But there is something that I want you to, to grab hold of in case you don't already know. And it's not in your notes, and it won't be up on the iMag screen. But I'm going to encourage you to write down three words in your notes. The first word is pre-tribulation. Pre-tribulation. The tribulation is the seven years that the Antichrist will rule on the earth. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation view believe that Jesus is coming back for those who are genuine Christ followers, taking us home to be with the Lord, and then those seven years of tribulation happen. And I share that view. There's a second group that believe in a mid-tribulation view. The mid-tribulation means that they believe that we'll go through half, the church will go through half of the seven years, three and a half years, and Christ will come back and take us out of here and we'll miss the last three and a half. The post-tribulation view is a view that means we're going to go through the whole tribulation, the whole seven years, and then Christ will come back. I hold a pre-tribulation view, and it's not just because I don't want to go through the tribulation period, though I don't want to go through the tribulation period. It's because when I pull together all the passages that deal with the issue, it really, the evidence seems to me to be so conclusive to a pre-tribulation rapture. But Mark, what if you're wrong? Well, I'll tell you this, if I turn out to be wrong and all the evidence shows we're in the tribulation period and there is the Antichrist and here we all sit, we're still here, I will come to this platform and tell you, well, you know, I was wrong about that. <laughs> and then I will do my dead level best to help lead this church through the tribulation period as long as we last. More than likely, I will be dead soon. They'll come at the pastor soon, and I'll be dead soon, and many in this room will die a martyr's death. And thank God that we have been found worthy to give up our life for the Lord Jesus Christ. What would be wrong with that? But I don't believe that's what the Bible is teaching. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This is the glorious return of Jesus. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen, meaning let it be. When Jesus Christ comes back, 
What will he be like? John shares that with us in Revelation chapter 19. So let's listen to what, what he, he gives to us first. He says Jesus, when he comes out of heaven, will come out of heaven as a conqueror. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. I want you to notice this white horse. For us in the 21st century, this means nothing to us. But for those who were living in the first century, they knew exactly what a white horse demonstrated. Every time one nation went against another, one king fought against another king, and the king that won beat the armies of the other king, there would be a parade, much like the Houston Astros after they win the World Series, in downtown. And so in the downtown, there would be this parade, and one of the features of that parade would be the king, the victorious king on a white charger riding down that street and everybody would cheer because they would know exactly what that means. We won. We are the conquerors. We defeated the enemy. The white horse represents the conqueror. And that is what Jesus is representing as John explains Jesus coming out of heaven. And notice he says, and Jesus is called faithful and true, meaning dependable. It means that every promise that he gave, he fulfilled. When he said to us, I'll save you. When he said to us, I'll take care of you. I'll care for you. I will be there for you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Every single promise he made, he delivered on. And now this last promise, he's coming again. When he comes out of heaven, he will be declaring on the white horse, I'm the conqueror, and I am faithful and true. I have kept my promise. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says this. First, I want to remind you that in the last days, there will be scoffers who will laugh at the truth and do every evil thing they desire. And this will be their argument. Jesus promised to come back, did he? Then where is he? Why, as far back as anyone can remember, everything has remained exactly the same since the world was first created. But you must not forget, dear, dear friends, that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Stop right there. I'm going to digress for just a moment. Over and over in the New Testament, it says the same phrase, that when Jesus comes, he'll come like a thief in the night. He will come unexpectedly like a thief. But the problem is, is that if he comes in the mid-tribulation or he comes at the end of the tribulation, we'll all know exactly when he's coming. Because we know it's seven years. We'll know exactly when he is coming. So he couldn't come as a thief in the night. He can only come as a thief in the night if he comes 
before the tribulation period begins. But I digress. He is faithful and true. He promised he's coming back. And here he comes. Jesus is coming as a righteous judge. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. For he, meaning God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. When Jesus came, he came to save us. But when he comes back, he is coming to judge. Fourth, he comes ready to place all things under his feet. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. He's speaking of God's power demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There is Jesus at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the idea that John has in mind in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, when John says, when I saw him, he's coming out, I saw on his head are many crowns. That doesn't equate at all for us in, in democracies. But back in first century, they knew exactly what that meant. When one king would defeat another king, the king that had been defeated would be bound and brought before the king who had won. And the king that had won would then take the crown off the head of the defeated king and put the crown on his own head and then the defeated king would be killed. The placing of the crown upon the victorious king's head was to symbolically say, now I rule this kingdom that this man once ruled. For Jesus to come out of heaven with many crowns simply means that Jesus is Lord of all, that Jesus is King of all, that he is the sole ruler on this earth, that the Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. He comes out of heaven with all these crowns, I am King of kings and Lord of lords. Next, John says, he comes out as God in flesh. Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. And his name is the word of God. Do not believe what the Mormons teach, that Jesus was a created being that elevated himself to become a God. Do not believe what Jehovah Witness teach, that Jesus was simply a created being that God used. The Bible does not say any of those things. The Bible says that Jesus Christ had no beginning. Because Jesus is God who took on flesh. Listen to what he says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's talking about Jesus, the Word who is God. 
In fact, there's so many places in the Old Testament and New Testament that point to Jesus as God in flesh. Jesus comes in power and glory and majesty. Revelation 19 verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Jesus Christ that we serve. So what is going to happen? He is coming out of heaven. What else takes place? All believers who are already in heaven will come back with Jesus at his second coming. Listen to what Paul, I mean, John now says, Revelation 19 and verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You know, if I just read that verse, I would think, well, okay, is, are these angels? These armies of heaven, are these angels? Well, angels will be coming back with him. But the armies of heaven that he's talking about are us. He's talking about us. How do we know it? Because of the phrase, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You see, just a few verses before that verse, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, 8, listen to what he says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean. There it is. Was given her. Who? The bride of Christ was given her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Do you remember when the Lord's Supper was taking place right before Jesus was crucified? And he had gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and do you remember that all of a sudden he stopped what was the Seder of the Passover, and he said, Take this bread and eat it. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Boy, that was off script. And they didn't, what are you talking about? And then he took the cup and he said, drink of this cup because the wine represents my blood, which is shed for you. Immediately, the next phrase that he says is found in Mark 14, verse 25. And here's what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. What was he meaning? What was he talking about? Many places in the New Testament, you'll remember that... The church is called the bride of Christ. Do you remember that? In which Jesus is the groom and the church, Christ's followers, are called the bride of Christ. Jesus talked about a marriage supper of the Lamb. The time in which it is the time of the wedding, sort of speak. You see, he was really referring to what happened in first century when they would have a wedding and the groom and the bride and now they are married and then they have the wedding uh, feast of that, of that marriage. That's what Jesus was talking about. 
in the relationship between us and him. He is the groom and the church is the bride. John is identifying this event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's identifying this event to happen just before Jesus comes back. Why is he saying that? Because we're all there. We're all there. We've already been raptured and into heaven. And this is just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth, which probably isn't worth a lot. But this is my opinion. This description of us being clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, that has been given us to wear because it stands for the righteous acts of the saints, tells me that the judgment seat of Christ, our judgment as Christ's followers, has already happened. We have already been judged by the Lord. All the things in our life, whether they be good or bad, the Bible says. We have already stood before him and we have already been rewarded. That is the goal of the judgment seat of Christ, to give us our rewards. We've talked about that already in this series. But notice that when that judgment has happened, that one of our rewards will be to be given a robe of fine linen, bright and clean. We're clean. We've been judged. We've been rewarded. The marriage supper of the Lamb has happened, and now we come out of heaven. Can I tell you, I missed the first coming of Christ, but I will not be missing the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'll be there. And notice what it says, we come out of heaven on white horses. Is that literal? Are we really riding horses when we come out of heaven? Well, I don't know. But this is my suggestion to you. You probably ought to get some riding lessons. Because the last thing you want to have happen is you're riding out of heaven and you fall off your horse. That would be so embarrassing. Let's come out knowing what we're doing on that horse. We come out with Christ. Second of all, creation will respond to its creator coming. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 24. It's one of the greatest passages in all the Bible about the second coming, and it comes from the lips of Jesus. And Jesus says this, immediately after the distress of those days, the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, and boom, here comes Jesus. So Jesus is saying, when he comes, it will affect all of the universe, all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 19 says it this way, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That is a tough passage of Scripture. What in the world is he saying? Well, to cut to the chase, when Christ comes back, even all of creation will feel liberated. 
at the return of its creator. Not just we Christians, we Christ followers will come with him, but all of creation will be impacted. Third, all of the Christians who are saved during the tribulation period who are alive will be gathered to safety. Matthew 24, verse 31, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And fourth, all the world will see Jesus Christ appear physically at the exact same time. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will mourn when they see Jesus. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Why will they mourn? Because they know they picked the wrong side. When they see him coming out, and they are the followers of this Antichrist, and they see Jesus come, oh no. It will have looked like God is lost, Satan is one, this man is so powerful, no one can stop him, and suddenly out of heaven comes Jesus. And when the nations of the world see him, they will mourn because now comes the battle of Armageddon in which they will all be destroyed. Now here's my question to you. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you aren't, would you give your heart to him today? If there is a want to in your heart, the only reason there is a want to in your heart is because of the Holy Spirit of God calling you to himself. Would you say yes to him? And for every person in this room, every one of us that know Christ, there are people that we know who are lost. We've got to open our mouths. We've got to share Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with those people at work and school in our classrooms. Let God use you to make a difference, to enlarge the size of heaven, to help others come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We've got a job to do. We've got something to accomplish. We, we've got a purpose that God has given to us to make him known that others might come to know Jesus Christ and be forever saved. The last chapter says we win because there is a God in heaven and he is on his throne and this God is the one in charge. Do you know Christ as your Savior if you don't? Come and receive him as your Savior. Give your heart to him. Maybe you're visiting with us today. We urge you, would you come and join our church and become a part of this fellowship as God is leading in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and God, we say thank you for your word. It's so clear. It's so understandable. What will unfold in the last days? And, oh, God, I pray you would move in hearts of those in this room that do not know Christ as Savior, that, Father, this would be the moment of their salvation, that they would come and give their heart to Christ. Receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Oh, God, move in our hearts today that the answer of our life would be, yes, Lord. Whatever you tell us to do, yes, Lord. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen.